Good morning, King's Cross. It's good to be with you, uh, guests and visitors with us. We're glad you're here. However you got here, whatever brought you this morning, we're glad you're here. It's a safe and good place for you to be as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel with a very interesting title this morning, Demons, Death, and Taxes. (laughs) Interesting. Now, before we get to those details, I have a question for you this morning. What is faith? And indeed, what do demons, death, and taxes have to do with faith? The last 14 verses of Matthew chapter 17 are very interesting. But not only interesting, they're good for us. So just by way of reminder, we typically go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, covering both easy passages and difficult passages, not skipping over ones that might seem at first glance confusing or maybe even not related to one another. And we do that in part because the Apostle Paul says and explains and exhorts in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scriptures breathed out by God and for profitable, for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then therefore, because of that, he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That text is true of Matthew chapter 17, 14 through 27. It's good for us, profitable for us, instructing and teaching, reproving, correcting us. So what ties these topics together? Again, demons, death, and taxes. What might God be wanting to show and teach us this morning as we study this text to help us grow And again, I come back to my original question, what is faith? Faith, very simply, is trust or reliance upon someone or something. (laughs) Belief or confidence or conviction or dependence upon something. Everybody in this room has faith. I see it at work right now. What do I mean? Well, everyone in this room, at least uh, those who are seated, you have faith in the chair you're sitting in. (laughs) You've placed all of your weight upon that chair. (laughs) Your total dependence, you believe that chair will sustain you, will uphold you, will keep you as you sit in it. You have faith. You have faith that when you drive home today in the vehicle you came in, that the steering wheel and the steering column will function in order to change the angle of the tires to get you to your destination. You believe it's going to work and you're entrusting yourself to that car and that steering column and those wheels and the tire in those or the air in those tires to get you home safe. Everyone has faith and belief and trust in something or someone. Faith, again, is entrusting yourself to what you know and believe about someone or something with the conviction it'll get the job done. Well, today in our text, what we're going to find out is that we must trust Jesus. We must put our entire weight, our entire faith, our entire destination upon him, and particularly in three different categories. You must trust Jesus to overcome evil. You must trust Jesus to overcome death. And you must trust Jesus to navigate life in this broken world. You must trust him to overcome evil to overcome death and to navigate life in this broken world. Let's pray and ask for God's help one more time. We'll just jump into those three points. Father, we come to you depending on Jesus, the very author of our faith, the perfecter, sanctifier, finisher of our faith. By your spirit, depending on you even now to unpack your word to us, 
We need you. We need you to speak to us, and we must depend on you by faith to receive your word by the power of your spirit. So, Spirit, help us, we pray. Give us faith in Jesus. In his name, amen. First, you must trust Jesus to overcome evil. Now, just to set the context and remind you where we are in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, Peter, James, and John have just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. So from the glory of transfiguration, where Jesus pulled back the veil on his glory and revealed more of who he was in his uh, divinity, truly God, truly man, he pulled back the glory, pulled back the veil, the curtain, revealed to the inner three uh, who he was from the glory of transfiguration now to the depravity of the demonic. You talk about the mountaintop experience down to the depths of brokenness in this life. A man comes up to Jesus, panicked. In utter despair, in total need because of his son. Look again, Matthew 17, verse 14. When they, that's Jesus and the three, came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him, bowing down. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. We learn a bit more about the depths of brokenness and this demon possession that's happening in this precious child from Mark and Luke's account. Mark 9, 17. Mark uh, gives the account and adds these details. Teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Our brother Luke tells us, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he's my only child. This is the man's only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him. It will hardly leave him. So picture the scene. Jesus and the three come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. This father comes up to him in total desperation, bowing down before him, pleading with him, you must do something about this son of mine. He has maybe what we would call epilepsy. And and just to be clear, the Bible talks about disease and, and demonic possession. They're not necessarily always one and the same. Right? So sometimes you can just have uh, seizures, and they're just seizures because of broken bodies in a broken world. Sometimes in the scriptures you have seizures because a demon possesses an individual and causes the seizures. One not, not, doesn't necessarily mean the other was present. But in our case, in this case, this father is bringing his only son, or he's coming to Jesus and saying, my only son is possessed by this demon. It, it makes him mute of speech. He's foaming and gnashing his teeth. He's being convulsed and thrown into water and fire. It's a terrible situation. This man is hopeless, and he comes to Jesus begging for help. Can you imagine the utter despair and desperation of this father? Parents, think about your child. In one of the other accounts, we find out Jesus asks, how long has this been happening? And the father says, since his early childhood. So think about the utter despair and desperation in this father as he comes to Jesus saying, please, can you do anything to save and help my son? But can you also imagine the suffering life of this poor child? How he would have been outcast and understood that he was an outcast. How even that he was such a burden on his family and the suffering internally and emotionally in addition to physically and spiritually the torment that he was facing. This child is surely ostracized and treated as an outcast in society and a great burden to his family. And apparently the father had taken his son to the non-disciples. So while Jesus, Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, this father had taken this son to the non-disciples and asked them, can you do something about this? I've heard about y'all. I know that you're a follower of Jesus. 
I know in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 we, that Jesus gave you power to cast out demons. I know that now you have a ministry where you have done this. and This has happened before. Could you please do something? But the nine were not able to heal the boy. So when Jesus and the other three come back down the mountain, the man goes directly to Jesus. Parents, we have something to learn from this father. Going directly to Jesus in prayer is the greatest ministry you can ever have for your children. Going straight to him, saying, Christ, you must do something. Christ, will you do something? This is the most powerful ministry. You know, often in our culture, the, 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 the vocation of motherhood is downplayed. Moms, you can change the whole world through the prayers you pray for your children. Do you know that on Thursday, uh, Taylor Middleton and Sarah, who are members of this church, Sarah and her two youngest, Chanel and Araya, were leaving the grocery store, got T-boned in an intersection, and flipped their Yukon. They're both fine. But Taylor, uh, I rushed there. Taylor got there. We were there. And again, just a small scratch on Sarah's arm. But as we're processing and praising God for his protection over them in this horrible car wreck right by the Friendly Center, we're thinking through all that God must have done in order to protect and provide. And Taylor's mom texts him and says, Taylor, about 30 minutes before the wreck, God put it on my heart to pray for protection for you and your family. There's no doubt in my mind the Spirit of God led Taylor's mom to pray that prayer in order to protect Sarah and those precious babies. Prayer, if we're faithful parents, is the best ministry we have for our children. This father goes to Jesus himself and pleads the first step of faith. Generally, and the first step uh, of overcoming evil specifically is running to Jesus and kneeling before him and asking him to move. Now let's notice how Jesus responds, first by rebuking the generation. It's not quite the response you would anticipate, but if you know Jesus and you've followed along through Matthew, you know he often responds in ways that at first glance catches us off guard. Jesus responds by rebuking this generation. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. The boy was healed instantly. Now, Jesus gives this harsh response about the generation. Why? Think of all the miracles that we've watched Jesus perform as we've studied through Matthew. That he's gone through, he's healed the mute. He's healed the blind. He's healed the paralytic. He's raised some from the dead. He's delivered people from demonic possession after demonic possession. He's put ample evidence on display that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, and everybody around him ought to believe he is the Christ and the Messiah because all of the evidence he's given in all of these miracles, and instead, what do we see? Unbelief. He's demonstrated his sovereign authority as the Son of God. He's demonstrated time, time again he has authority over demons, and yet he has to rebuke them and cause them the faithless and twisted generation which seems in this to include the disciples and all the scribes and Pharisees, all of Israel who's been rejecting and not believing and trusting that he is indeed the Christ. Now this language, faithless and twisted, so unbelieving, so he says characteristic of this generation is unbelief and that it's twisted or perverse. And he's saying, I've put and given so much evidence to demonstrate who I am that you've got to twist the truth to not believe who I am. That, like there's so much evidence that Jesus is Lord. For you not to believe that, you've got to twist and manipulate and, make, and, and be so perverse with the uh, truth uh, in order to have that unbelief. It's twisted unbelief is characteristic of this generation. He's told them he's the authority to forgive sins. And then he's healed a paralytic to demonstrate, see, I have the authority to do that as well. 
but they've twisted the evidence and the truth to continue in their unbelief. Carson, D.A. Carson, one scholar says, juxtaposing perverse and unbelieving implies that the failure to believe stems from moral failure to recognize the truth, not from want of evidence, but from willful neglect or distortion of the evidence. Just like Israel in the desert when we study through Exodus, time and time again, God protects and provides. And time and time again, Israel grumbles and complains and refuses to believe that God will be faithful to what he said. This is why Jesus said, how long am I to bear with you, to be with you? Friends, one warning for us from this text is unbelief is willing to be very creative. The unbelieving culture and the unbelieving heart inside of you is willing to be twisted and perverse with truth. You'll come up with all kinds of excuses why you ought not follow Jesus. Come up with all kinds of excuses why you cannot believe he really is who he's. Like, unbelief is willing to be incredibly artistic in its unbelief. But notice, even so, Jesus rebukes the demon and heals the little boy. Notice he says again, so the father's come. Apparently, the little, he's left the little boy behind. Jesus come down the mountain. He's rushed over to the father. And Jesus says, bring the little boy to me. So rebukes this generation for unbelief. Rebukes them for twisting the truth about who he is and about what he is doing and is able to do. And yet, in his grace and mercy and kindness, says, bring that suffering child to me. Jesus is not the least bit afraid of the most powerful demons in this dark world. Instead, he rebukes the demon. The demon comes out of the boy. And apparently from Mark and Luke's account, there was kind of a violent convulsion as the demon takes the L and Christ proves victorious. The boy was healed instantly. Those around him thought he was surely dead. But Jesus demonstrates his sovereign superiority over demons, over death, over diseases in his broken world. And this boy is healed instantly. Reminds me of the words of that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Jesus can speak and demons lose immediately. All kinds of possession for an entire life this boy suffered. And one word of Jesus healed instantly from now on. This is King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, even non-Christians in the room, Jesus is able to deliver you from the most evil and wicked of circumstances. There is no darkness too dark for Jesus to take the L. Jesus speaks, darkness loses. So you can look to Christ and know in Christ there is power to triumph over every evil. There's no demon in this world, no matter how dark or powerful or real, that can stop King Jesus. With one little word, he shall fail them. His power and strength over the worst possible en enemies of evil and suffering is so superior that no foe is a genuine foe to King Jesus. You must trust him to overcome evil, evil in this world. But also, you need to rest assured that he has overcome it. Now, the disciples are curious because sometimes even hearing that right now, you might be like, well, I believe he's able, but why do we not always see him do it the way we think he ought to do it? And the disciples in this moment remember the nun. It's like, we tried. And so they had this private conversation with Jesus, like, help us interpret what we just went through. We know you're the one who can overcome evil. We've watched you deliver demons. Back in chapter 9, when you saw the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, and you told us to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, then you gave us the power to cast out demons. We've gone out. We've done it, but we couldn't this time. Why? Verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? 
He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, the smallest seed in this culture, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So again, notice later the disciples privately go to Jesus, and they're asking him this question. Like, why couldn't we do it? And notice he responds, because of your little faith. Now, it's interesting because he has little faith. So immediately we would just assume a lot of faith means it would have, they would have delivered the little boy. But they had a little faith, so they couldn't deliver the boy. But notice what Jesus does with the statement and the illustration. He's like, no, because of your little faith. If you had even the faith of a mustard seed, the smallest possible seed in this cultural moment in everybody's mind, then you could do it. Nothing would be impossible for you. So he says, because of your little faith, and it seems to be he's critiquing not the quantity of their faith, but the quality of it. So what's going on? What, were, like, what is it about this faith that was little that caused them to not be able to deliver this boy from this demonic possession? Perhaps it was this. Perhaps as they've been laboring, and even in this moment are away from Jesus as he's up on Mount of Transfiguration, perhaps they're thinking, yeah, I'm kind of feeling this power we got. <clears throat> I like this power to deliver people from demons, and it's just been given to me, and I can use it anytime I want. I can do whatever I want with it, whenever I want with it. Look at all this power and success in ministry we've had, and I can use it anytime I want. Suddenly, they're no longer depending on Jesus. They're depending on the gift. No longer trusting in the giver, but they're trusting in the gift itself. They're treating it as if some kind of magic Jesus has given to them. Like, no, 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 you've given me this gift, and friends, this is the great temptation even in ministry now. That if God has been faithful to you in the past in ministry success, that you just assume, well, I am just successful in ministry. And suddenly in that assumption, you stop depending on God for the fruit of what you're doing. And you depend on yourself. You depend on even the gifts he's given to you. And God is able to say, oh, no, no, you need my power to do anything good for me. In my power, nothing is impossible for you. But in your own power, you can't do anything apart from me. So perhaps in this moment, these disciples have started relying on uh, the, the gift, the gifts God has given to them as if it was some kind of magic spell they could use and manipulate to their own sovereign will anytime they wanted to. You may notice down in verse 21 in your Bible that it's not there. <laughs> so you may look down, it's like, wait a minute, it goes from 20 to 22. What happened to 21? So uh, kind of, you'll probably have a footnote letting you know that uh, there's, there's in, in some manuscripts, the phrase, the, the verse added, these, time, these kind only come out by prayer and fasting. Over in Mark chapter, Mark's version of verse 29, he says this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have, those have been discovered even the last 400 years, do not have this verse there. So even maybe an editor added verse 21 because of what Luke, uh, Mark says in his account. Some have even said, I read one scholar saying that uh, monks were frustrated with people not fasting with them more and added the, the fasting bit to it. But either way, the earliest manuscripts do not include that verse. Though Mark does include the, the issue with prayer, which is why I come back to say it's probably the case that in this moment, the disciples are depending on the gift itself rather than the giver. They've forgotten the power belongs to God and he alone. So literally, the disciples in that moment aren't being like the father who's come and kneels before God and asks for help. They were trusting in these gifts as if they could use them on their own. This is the danger again. Is why, why did Jesus tell his disciples in Luke chapter 10? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Again, it seems Jesus is re- uh, revealing an issue with the, the quality of their faith. Because what he ends up saying is then faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. Nothing's impossible if your faith is in the right place. What's important about the chair underneath you? How much you believe in it or how strong it is to uphold you? <laughs> like faith is as strong as the object of its faith. Put your faith in a weak object, it will crumble. Put your faith in King Jesus, it will stand. So he's demonstrating prayer. This is what prayer reminds us. God, you must do this work, not us. Not even the gifts you've given to us, but you and you alone must do this. And understand the proverbial point. You're able to move mountains. Faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. Don't be like I was as a child, or maybe be like I was as a child. Um, but, but understand the text. So this was, a, this was just a proverbial statement in culture, right? You can do anything. You can do anything you put your mind to it. Maybe that's a proverbial statement in our culture. You can move mountains. He says the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. When I was a little kid, I mean, my, my parents had just been converted. And my dad would have these conversations with me. He would call daddy talks. And usually during these daddy talks, they started with me getting in trouble. And then they turned to a Bible lesson somehow. That's just kind of how this thing usually worked out. <clears throat> and in one of these Bible lessons, he was teaching me, son, with the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. And then over in James, it says, don't doubt or it won't come true. Like, you don't look back and be wavering and doubting. So on the way to my grandparents, who lived about 30 minutes away from me, I would be in the back seat, my little six-year-old self, praying, God, move that tree just one inch. <laughs> and then I would convince myself the rest of the car ride, it moved. <laughs> And it's like, but I can't look to see if it did because then that means I doubt it and it won't happen. So the rest of the ride was Clint. It really moved. I believe God moved that tree an inch. So perhaps between Shelby and Lincoln, there's a whole bunch of trees that have moved an inch. I don't know. <laughs> but that's not necessarily Jesus' point right here. Why? Because we pray and it's, it's, it's possible for us to do anything by faith according to God's will. Right, but this is the problem. Sometimes in culture, particularly you get around kind of the health, wealth, prosperity movement, it's like you use faith like this instrument for you. Like you're the master and you get to name it and claim it and do whatever you want with it. But that's putting faith in faith, not faith in Christ. That's saying I got faith in my magic faith, not faith in the Jesus who says I can do anything, right? So this is, this is what's important for us to understand uh, very clearly. Uh, John makes it clear who was with Jesus on Mount of Transfiguration and in this moment, First John. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of him. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Infinite resources are available to you according to the will of God. Anything you ask, God is able to do according to his good and perfect will, not just because you're six and you want the trees to move. <laughs> right? God is able if we believe and trust in him. But again, this faith is not in, in faith magic. It's in the Christ who's spoken. Friends, Jesus will never let you down. He's able to overcome. So ultimately, don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Christ. It's not like you know, the movie The Santa Claus, where Christmas spirit is what makes the sleigh fly. And Santa Claus is unable to do so without Christmas spirit. That's not the case with our God. He can do whatever he wants to, whether you believe in him or not. But he has chosen in his sovereignty and his providence to respond in accordance to your faith. So your faith does matter. This is how he's chosen to respond and act. So trust in him. So why prayer is so important. One scholar aptly stated, prayer is faith, or simply faith breathing. Prayer is faith breathing. So no matter how dark the evil you face, Jesus is able to overcome. Trust him. You must trust him to overcome evil. 
even when the evil is unjustified unbelief in you, not demons out there. Secondly, you must trust Jesus to overcome death. You must trust Jesus to overcome death. Now, this point will be very brief, but know that there's nothing more important than this point. It'll be brief because we've already covered this theme when Jesus made his first prediction of his death, burial, and resurrection back in chapter 16, verse 21. But nothing has been more important to the Christian faith than our beliefs about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Nothing is more important about your faith than what you think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul uses the language in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It's of first importance. Nothing's more important. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Friends, let me make crystal clear. You cannot be a Christian without trusting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You reject that, you reject God, according to the Christian faith. And so we must be clear about this. You must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus' substitutionary death as your only hope in life and death, as all the great creeds and confessions confess. So again, we'll be brief, but nothing's more important than what we're talking about right now. Verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. So again, in Matthew, this is the second prediction of Christ's crucifixion that he gives to his disciples. They're gathering in Galilee, and he's, he's making it explicit. The Son of Man's going to be delivered. He's going to die, and on the third day, he's going to be raised. But notice that it's in passive voice that he's going to be raised. So there's something going on that he's saying, no, no, I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm not the one doing the raising. There's another, namely my Father, by the power of the Spirit. That he's going to be raised from the dead. This is passive voice. Jesus will be raised. He trusts his Father to raise him from the dead by the power of the Spirit. Which, what is this? This is perfect faith. This is perfect trust. Jesus said, no, 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 your faith is weak and feeble and problematic. Mine is not. I'm going to die, but you best believe I'm coming out of death on the third day. I will be raised from the dead. My father will, by his spirit, raise me from the dead. I will be coming out of death. Leon Morris said, Jesus is, is in no doubt that he will die, but in no doubt either that death will not be the end. The father will raise him, and that speedily, for it will be as early as the third day. What an expression of perfect faith. This is why the Christian need not trust in the strength of their own confidence. We trust in the strength of the confidence of Christ. You may say, my faith is weak. I say, I say to you, Jesus is not, and you're in him, and he is in you. He knew his father would get him up out of death. He knew he would be raised from the dead. It's his trusting in his father to do that which he and the triune God had decided and before the foundation of the earth to accomplish. He says, this will happen. There's no question in his mind. If you're in Christ, that is yours. And just as he wasn't afraid of the demons, nor is he afraid of death. Brothers and sisters, our great enemies are as pansies compared to our conquering king. Death and demon is no threat to him. This is why we trust in Christ. He's conquered. He's overcome. We need not be afraid. No matter the demons we face, no matter the death that is sure to come for all of us, we need not be afraid if we trust in Christ. 
But here the disciples are, notice they're greatly distressed. We learn from other accounts they're a bit confused. They still can't grasp how Jesus can be the Messiah and yet must suffer and die. They can't understand how the one who's got the strength to deliver people from the worst of demons will be delivered over to death. How can the deliverer be delivered over to die? This makes no sense to them. They still can't grapple and get their head around how can you be the conquering king and yet you're going to suffer and die. But also notice Jesus is the first time he makes a prediction of betrayal. Because he's, he's going to be delivered. That's also passive voice. And there's a bit of a double entendre going in this that guides us into one of the mysteries that the scriptures over and over again show us is the most beautiful of God's mysteries. That evil men do evil things underneath the sovereign reign and rule of God. And so he's going to be delivered by Judas. By one of his own beloved disciples, he will be betrayed and delivered over to be killed. And yet we find out that all of that was according to the sovereign will and plan of God. Evil man doing evil things, but underneath the sovereign rule of a good and gracious God. It's one of the most beautiful of God's mysterious ways revealed in Scripture. Evil men can do the evil things and be totally responsible for their evil, and yet unknowingly be fulfilling God's sovereign plans. We see this most clearly, and, and uh, we've talked about this before, but Joseph, in Genesis chapter 50, when he's betrayed by his brothers, they throw him in a pit, they leave and they end up selling him, they leave him to die, they end up selling him. And then suddenly Joseph gets exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, has all kinds of power, there's famine in the land, and all his brothers show up and realize, wait a minute, you've got power to destroy us, and we left you for dead, and indeed sold you to, to the enemies, and now you could kill us, and how does Joseph respond? Genesis chapter 50, his brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. Joseph was a man who understood God is sovereign even over the evil of man. What they meant for evil, God will use for good, even to save others. This is the great promise of Romans 8, 28, 29. It's not just a coffee cup verse that's trite and meaningless. No, no, this sustains us in the midst of great suffering. We don't understand the brokenness of the world. What we know is that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So no matter what evil your enemies might do to you, your sovereign God will use it to your good to conform you to the image of his son. And so you can understand my God conquers evil and he conquers death. And even in all of this, I don't understand how it all fits together. But I know in the midst of it all, no matter what suffering I go through, even unto death, he is sovereign and he's good. And Peter and the apostles were confused in this moment. Again, they were distressed. But brothers and sisters, when Christ resurrected... And then in Acts, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, they were no longer confused. What do they preach? Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, you had no excuse. And wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see their preaching embraced the tension? You did this. 
according to the definite plan of God. Your evil crucified and killed him according to and fulfilling the definite plan of God to save sinners who would uh, save them through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son that you crucified and killed. Notice how this tension goes together and brings them great peace. And also notice how he said it was not possible for death to hold him. Christian, there is nothing more important than this. There's nothing more important than you believing Jesus has overcome death. That he's walked out of the tomb. Again, Paul, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, of first importance is this gospel. And then he gives implications to you and your life and how this changes. There was some teaching there was no resurrection. Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain. Your faith is in vain. Your trust is in vain. We even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul's very clear. If Jesus didn't die and resurrect in your place and you believe and trust in that, you're a fool. More than anybody else on the planet, you should be pitied because Christians are banking everything on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We've got everything on him. Everything. We're not saying, no, no, I'll put some on Jesus and a little bit on Muhammad and a little bit over here on this and a little bit on my... No, no, it's all on Christ. If he didn't resurrect, we have no hope. But Paul continues. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. We are most pitied if Christ didn't resurrect, but he did. Therefore, you can put your full weight and confidence and conviction and trust and hope and belief in the fact that that tomb in the Middle East is empty. And the throne of Christ is occupied. He's seated. He's not panicking about heaven, concerned about demons. He's seated, victorious, conquered demons, conquered death. Therefore, our greatest enemy, death, is now just a great servant to us in Christ. So you must trust Christ to overcome demons or evil. You must trust Christ to overcome death. Thirdly, you must trust Jesus to navigate life in this broken world. Death, demons, and taxes. <laughs> now, some of y'all are like, Pastor Clant, this needs no explanation. Those three clearly belong in the same category. <laughs> Taxes belong with demons and death. We get it. You don't need, like, matter of fact, we're just frustrated. The third point's not titled, we must trust Jesus to overcome taxes. That's what we're confused about. Why is that not what the text says, or the, uh, the point title is? Notice there's a, a religious tax question, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. Now, real quick, contextually, this tax, this is the temple tax the Jews actually favored based on Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 through 16. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the, the whole passage, but this was a tax put in place for the upkeep of the temple. So originally from the tabernacle, then for the temple. And so this is just the current application iteration of we got to keep up with the temple of God so that we might make sacrifices and offerings before our God. And so this was a tax that, that, that Rome was involved with, but it was is for the, the, the place of worship for the Jews. And so they believe this is a good tax because we must make offerings to God and it's in fulfillment of even of Exodus chapter 30. So this is a good, a good tax for them in as much as it kept worship alive. So they go up to Peter and they're like, hey, Peter, this is interesting. Jesus, this Jesus you follow, 
He said at one point earlier, something greater than the temple's here. Even in John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. So this temple where we worship Yahweh and we have to give this tax and pay this tax, does this Jesus who claims to be Messiah and is doing all these miracles, is he going to pay it? Will his followers pay this tax? So notice this is the question. This is interaction with Peter. And Peter's like, yeah, 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 bet it up. No, no, we're good. We're good. We're good Jews. We'll pay the tax. But notice what Jesus does and how he responds. First, he disciples Peter. So there's a teachable moment. And again, Jesus is always the, the master discipler. So there's a moment where we got to figure out how do we navigate life in a broken world, particularly in the middle of redemptive history where Jesus is navigating. But he sees this opportunity to, to disciple Peter. Peter comes in and Jesus actually either saw the interaction going on and knew what was happening or supernaturally knew the conversation. But Peter brings up, or Jesus brings up the conversation. Look at verse 25. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. So again, Jesus takes this teachable moment with Peter. And he says, Let's just talk about this for a minute. When kings tax their land, who do they tax? The royal family or everybody else? Peter's like, Everybody else. Jesus is like, Right. So then the sons are free. The royal family doesn't have to pay the tax. They live in the crib. They live in the king's house. They don't have to pay taxes. Everybody else is paying taxes to keep the king's house going. And so Jesus is like, yeah, right. So then the sons are free. Like you're raised in the royal family. You don't have to pay taxes. But before you say hallelujah, Jesus has overcome taxes. (laughs) Time out. Let's keep going with the text. And watch Jesus flex his divine power and his earthly wisdom. This is a beautiful juxtaposition. Of I'm gonna demonstrate, he's gonna demonstrate, Jesus is gonna demonstrate, I've got power like no other in this little miracle situation you're gonna see. And yet, earthly wisdom, I know how to navigate real life in a really broken world, and in this moment, how to do it with great wisdom. Verse 27 However, Jesus says, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, notice Jesus says not to give offense to them. Jesus is living with the same innocence of a dove and shrewdness of a serpent that he taught his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. When he said, I'm, verse uh, 16, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So there's earthly wisdom going on right here that's needed in a broken world. And it's a unique, a unique moment in redemptive history. In AD 70, the temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus has come. He indeed is greater than the temple. The greater temple is here. And then he's going to build a new uh, church, a new people, a new community. That's what we'll start talking about in his next discourse in Matthew chapter 18, this new community. But right now he's in the middle of fulfilling redemptive. Uh, All of the Old Testament was pointing to, he's in the middle of fulfilling it. He's not died yet. He's not resurrected yet. So he says to Peter and his disciples, listen, I'm free. I ain't got to pay the tax because the father is my my father. And anybody connected me ain't got to pay the tax because all of this is to worship God. But if you're in me, I am God. (laughs) But... Not to give offense to everyone else. Let me give you this little divine flex. (laughs) Go cast a hook into the sea. There's a bass swimming around out there. Or a big catfish swimming around out in the sea. And and I've got a shekel in his mouth that will pay the tax. Because what I'm not fitting to do right now is give them money from the people supporting our ministry. We're not going to do that. But I'm going to demonstrate I'm sovereign. That I'm God. That I can control. That my father indeed has a cattle on a thousand hills. 
And we have savings accounts in the mouths of catfish. <laughs> so I'll go get what I need to go get because I'm fulfilling and demonstrating to you even in the flesh right now in this moment, Psalm chapter 8, verse 6 through 8, in action. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This is a seriously divine flex. But notice the humility. Let's not offend them if we need not. I can, I can pay this tax. That's fine. I don't have to. I'm free not to because I'm the king of kings. God the Father is my father. I'm the one and only son, and all who are with me are in him now and in this royal family. But not to give offense, pay the tax. And I'm going to do it through this divine miracle. Jerome, the church father, says, I know not which to admire most here, our Lord's foreknowledge or his greatness. But again, not only his greatness, notice humility. He doesn't want to cause religious or political offense to outsiders for no reason. D.A. Carson says, perhaps too, we're reminded again of Jesus' humility. He who so controls nature and its powers that he stills storms and multiplies food now reminds Peter of that power by this miracle while nevertheless remaining so humble that he would not needlessly cause offense. So brothers and sisters, what do we see here is people freed by the gospel of Christ. People who trust Jesus to overcome evil. People who trust Jesus to overcome death are willing for the cause of the gospel, not to cause offense to outsiders. To give up rights that we have in order to not cause offense so that the gospel might advance. You might say that Jesus overcame taxes and our unwilling spirit to pay them <laughs> in this miracle. You may look to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and see the heartbeat of what he captures. The kind of the missional desire. Christ is making sure the, the cross is what's most central and important to us. So if there are moments where we cannot cause offense politically or in, in religious categories, okay, let's not cause offense. The gospel's going to be offensive, and we're going to preach the mess out of the gospel. So we're not going to water down the offense of the gospel. We're not going to be unnecessarily offensive, particularly when it comes to politics. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not my, being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people. By all means, I might save some. Why? I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So brothers and sisters, as we wrap up, know the gospel message is offensive. Never water it down. There's been a conversation a sister had here recently uh, where a friend asked her, hey, look, I'm, I'm fine with y'all talking about Christianity and God and all that, but like y'all talk about Jesus so much. And it's offensive to say Jesus is the only way to God. Friends, that's what we believe. And if you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you. You're assuming it's not true that he's the only way to God. What if it is? Would you not then beg us to keep proclaiming that it is? If you really will die and go to hell apart from faith in Christ, would you not rather us keep telling you look to Christ, even if you don't like us, because of the, the glory that awaits if you trust in Christ? Would you not say, no, 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 don't let me manipulate you and twist your arm into being a universalist? Hold to what you believe, but please, would you do it gently and respectfully? 
The gospel message is always offensive. Never water it down. Non-Christian friend, if Jesus is our only hope to overcome evil and death, don't you want us to keep making that clear? Only if we are wrong should you be offended. If we're right, you should be grateful. And you should look to Christ. But brothers and sisters, though the gospel is offensive and you should never water it down, the gospel also makes us concerned about being less offensive in our presentation and lifestyle, especially in matters of politics in a politically divided day. Woe to you if your politics make you hate your political enemies rather than introduce them to the God who saved you by his grace. You should reject those kind of politics. You should run to Christ. You should have good ethical, biblical arguments and define biblical ethics. But not, we, we must not let our politics divide us and make enemies out of those who Christ has called to reach with the gospel, no matter which side of the aisle they are on. So let us debate ethics. Let us stand for what is right, but let us do so with the posture of Christ and for the gospel of Christ, not for allegiance to political parties or theories. Let us point people to Jesus, the one who's strong enough to cast all of our weight upon. He's overcome evil. He's overcome death. And he has and will give us wisdom to navigate life in this broken world. Let's close in prayer.